Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the fifth episode of season 11. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know when written down, the word almost is the longest word in the english language to have all of its letters in alphabetical order i'll let you ponder over that while you maybe write it down with a pen and a pencil and a piece of paper now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment random quote of the day it's great to be the fastest runner but not when you're running in the wrong direction that was said by richard osman currently enjoying his thursday murder club series of books A listener called Megan requested this case via email. We're in the Norfolk village of Emneth this week, located in the east of England. For reference, the village is around three miles southeast of Wisbeach, 22 miles east and slightly north of Peterborough, and for my international listeners, 90 miles north of London. Here are five quick-fire facts about Emneth. Number one. Emneth's name is of Anglo-Saxon origin and derives from the Old English for Ena's meeting place or meadow. I might be saying Ena, E-A-N-A. Someone will correct me on that, I'm sure. Number two, Emneth is not featured in the 1086 Doomsday Book. That's likely because in the late 11th century, that area of Norfolk was still flooded. Number three, Emneth's parish church is dedicated to St Edmund and dates from the 15th century. St Edmund or Edmund the Martyr used to be the king of Anglia from about 855 CE until his death in 869 CE. Number four, Emneth Hungate is a small settlement near the village of Emneth with the Hungate suffix suggesting the area may have been associated with the keeping or rearing of hounds. Emneth Hungate is the specific location in which the events of this story took place, by the way. And number five, Hagbeach Hall was a medieval hall in the village and was demolished in 1887, although its 17th century stables remain and have been converted into houses. 
The approximate population of Emnath, according to the 2011 census, is 2,617. Before we get into the story, I want to reiterate that October is Domestic Abuse Awareness Month. I need to clarify and apologise about my wording in some previous episodes in which I referred to it as domestic violence rather than domestic abuse. Violence has connotations of the abuse just being physical, whereas the reality is it's far broader than that. A few of my listeners reached out and explained that the terminology I used was generally considered outdated, which I was naively unaware of, so I want to quickly thank Terry, Lisa and Scarlett for your kind words and advice regarding this matter. If anyone listening is experiencing domestic abuse or is concerned that someone that you know is, there are people out there who want to support you. Please reach out to one of the charities in this episode's description and please remember that you are not alone. Every now and then, I'll research a case that is so divisive it sparks a huge debate even many years after the events occurred. My episodes covering the murders of Jodie Jones and Carol Park in my 7th and 8th seasons respectively are the most recent ones that come to mind where, at the end, I honestly didn't know which side I was on. This week's story is no different. Even a near quarter of a century after the events, a fierce argument exists over whether the perpetrator was rightly or wrongly convicted. I want to ask you a question to set the stage. If you awoke in the middle of the night and heard burglars in your house, what would you do? I'm less interested in whether you have a fight or flight instinct here. What I'm getting at is, what level of force do you see as being reasonable if you were to confront the intruders? Would hitting them with a cricket bat be classed as using reasonable force? Probably. What about charging at them with a knife? Maybe. But what about killing them? Do you think you'd have just cause for doing that? What if the killing was done with a gun and there were questions about how much your life truly was in danger? Those are all moral questions I want you to keep in the back of your mind as the events of this story unfold. Fred Barris was born in around 1983 and was the first son of his parents, Fred Sr. and Ellen Barris. Despite being the couple's only son, Fred was the youngest of six siblings. His older sisters, Elaine, Elizabeth, Mary Ellen, Sarah Jane and Rosie, were delighted to welcome their little brother to the world and they doted on him as much as you'd expect. It wasn't long after Fred was born that Fred Sr. and Ellen separated. That left Ellen with six kids to look after and raise on her own, but she did as good a job as anyone could in her situation. Neither Fred nor his five sisters went without food, clothes or toys throughout their childhood, which is a testament to the mum's dedication and love for them. One thing I took from this story was the lack of a stable father figure in Fred's life. As far as I can tell, his dad was essentially out of the picture right from the beginning. I'm not going to speculate on the effects and ramifications that had on Fred Senior's namesake, but it's worth adding here the list of criminal convictions Fred Senior had. Dating back to 1969, Fred Senior had been convicted of various offences, including assault causing bodily harm, assault in police, reckless driving, driving without a licence, handling stolen goods, theft, obstructing police, threatening behaviour and traffic offences. If young Fred's only male role model was his dad, then it begs the question as to what his life would have looked like had that not been the case. My goal here isn't to judge Fred Sr. nor his son, despite what he would go on to do. I just wonder what Fred Jr.'s life would have looked like had things been different. 
Fred attended Oliver Quibell Infant School before then going to Hortonville Junior School for his primary education years. It was only when he eventually made it to high school that things started to change for the worse. Sconce Hills High School and Fred Barris did not mix. At the age of around 12 or 14, some sources claimed, Fred was expelled and never went back. The reasons behind his expulsion are not known, but the decision not to return was likely one made by Fred, with some influence from his uncle playing a part. I say that because Fred chose to work on his uncle's market stalls as a trader in Newark, Nottinghamshire, and Lincoln in Lincolnshire. Still, he was just a young kid entering those awkward teenage years. He had hobbies just like anyone else, including fishing and camping, activities he'd undertake with his many friends on the estate where he lived. I could easily use the phrase, boys will be boys, here when describing what Fred and his mates got up to, but I was once his age, and petty crime is not something I partook in. From the age of 12, Fred was well known to the police. In the four years from then until he was 16, when his story abruptly ended, Fred was in court a total of 28 times on the back of various criminal offences. Nothing Fred did could be considered a serious crime. It were mainly stuff like shoplifting, stealing furniture and other petty theft. I'm not justifying it of course, but it wasn't exactly an armed robber or a violent criminal gangster if you know what I mean. The reasoning behind his young life of crime, according to his mum, was due to him falling in with the wrong crowd. When he was about 15, Fred was sent to a young offenders institute on the back of another theft conviction, but even that wasn't enough to dissuade him from continuing the path he were going down. Those who loved and cared for him did their utmost to try and get him to right his wrongs, but he wasn't having any of it. He was a cheeky young lad who had a constant beaming smile and a knack for making those around him also smile and laugh. He had a heart of gold, so said his family members, and was basically harmless. Ellen has said of her son, Everyone loved Fred very much. I only had one son and I loved him very much, but he bled to death in a field on his own for the sake of a few petty things. I'm jumping the gun a bit with that quote as it reveals Fred's fate, but it's important to provide some context for his character and how he was perceived by those closest to him. Fred's uncle, Tony Joins, possibly the same uncle he worked on the market store with, but I could be wrong, said the reason so many kids on the estate turned to petty theft and other minor crimes was that there was bugger all for them to do where they lived. As a result, the youngsters would hang around shop entrances at night time and dare each other to nick something from inside. I guess whoever stole the item with the most value won the game. It raises another question about the importance of youth clubs in areas such as the one where Fred grew up, as it gives kids something productive to do. You could say the same about a sports club or a boxing gym. Then again, being sent to an institution didn't stop Fred from continuing his criminal lifestyle, so who's to say a youth club would have changed his ways? Our main timeline begins in August 1999, just a few months away from the new millennium. And even before the events I'm about to go through, Fred was once more in trouble with police after being caught attempting to steal some garden furniture. He and another boy were caught red-handed carrying a patio table and chairs down the street. The subsequent appearance at Newark Youth Court led to Fred being bailed, as persuaded by a solicitor David Payne, but David would later look back on that decision in hindsight and regret it. The mugshot taken of Fred after that most recent arrest was the last photo ever taken of him. 
It's the one I used for this episode's artwork. Before we get going into the real timeline, let's set even more context. Tony Martin is who I'm introducing next, and despite typically referring to the perpetrator in my episodes by their surname only, I'm going to refer to Tony as Tony because his surname is also a first name, and I'll get confused if I do that, and I don't want to confuse you either. Tony was a 54-year-old single man living alone at a derelict farmhouse during the events of this story. Bleak House was what he christened the farmhouse, which was more than an apt name given the decrepit condition it was in. Based in the small settlement of Emnath Hungate, which I mentioned in this episode's location facts, Tony was well known to the local community due to his supposed eccentric ways. He was a real friendly character by all accounts and went out of his way to speak to everyone, unlike many other local farmers, but he had the odd quirk that made others raise an eyebrow or two at times. They were nothing major, but he'd do things like wait until everybody else had finished farming for the day before heading out at night and doing some of his own. He'd also decide to randomly head to an antique fair when really he should have been at the farm working. Antiques were a real passion of Tony's, but not for the reason you might think. He was less concerned with their value and more interested in their history. The items he collected and the story behind them meant much more to him than how much he could sell them for. Most days, Tony would visit his neighbour Richard for a brew and a catch-up. Again, that wasn't something many locals did, and that overt friendliness was looked upon with a wee bit of suspicion and caution. In the months leading up to that August, the 100-year-old Victorian farmhouse, which was set over two storeys, had been burgled on two separate occasions. In May, the robbers didn't manage to steal anything of much value. It may have been the first time the farmhouse was targeted though, so perhaps it was more of a recon mission than a dedicated robbery. Lo and behold, a month later, Bleak House was burgled again. This time, some of Tony's prized possessions were robbed. A chest of drawers containing all sorts of paperwork and photos of Tony's family history was stolen, leaving the homeowner devastated. I read that Tony had three Rottweilers kept at the property, so it kind of baffled me as to how burglars were allowed anywhere near the farmhouse, but Bruno, Daniel and Otto lived in a dilapidated cottage next to the property. It was essentially used as a kennel. Tony was close to his mum, Hilary, who herself lived in a large property in the village of Elm, roughly six miles southwest of Emnath Hungate. Hillary's house was described as being a mansion in one article, with its estimated value being half a million pounds, around 900 grand in today's money. Tony's mum's house had also been robbed in the months leading up to this story's events, which led to an incredibly paranoid Tony barricading his front door with a heavy RSJ steel beam. Typically a logical person with not one ounce of an aggressive streak in him, according to those he knew, the public school educated bachelor was now fortifying his farmhouse in case it was targeted by burglars in the future. Having said that, Tony did make his views on burglars known and he held no punches. When informing the police about the robbery in May, Tony reportedly told the police call handler that some of his furniture had been left outside and that he hoped the burglars would return for it. He explained that he would blow their heads off if and when they did. His negative opinions towards those from the travelling community, which I believe Fred was, were made crystal clear at a farm watch meeting on one occasion when Tony spoke of a fantasy scenario he wished to play out. He longed for the opportunity to place a load of travellers in one of his fields and trap them by surrounding the field with barbed wire. 
he would then use a machine gun to kill every last one of them. The prosecution team used the vitriolic views he allegedly held against him at the trial, so I feel it's important to inform you of them so that you get the full picture. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. The local police force didn't do anything regarding the two robberies at Bleak House, which only infuriated Tony further. No arrests were made, and the police said there was pretty much naught they could do. The criminals would, therefore, have no reason not to carry on targeting Tony's farmhouse or any other isolated property, as there was no fear of retribution. On the evening of August 20th, Fred had chicken and chips for tea, which his mum had bought from the local chippy. After eating that, he informed his mum he was going out with his mates, which he frequently did, but Ellen had no idea that he was about to head 60 miles southeast to Emnath Hungate to participate in a robbery. Fred had reportedly boasted to some of his friends in the days leading up to that that he was going on his big first job. He was finally part of something more significant than petty shop theft. Ellen, who had been unwell, was a bit worried when Fred failed to return home that evening, but she figured he must be staying over at one of his mate's houses. She had no idea she wouldn't see her only son alive again. Fred wasn't meeting friends in his age group at all, and he wasn't staying locally. He was heading to Norfolk with 29-year-old Brendan Fearon and 33-year-old Darren Bark. 16-year-old Fred was clearly being led astray and was likely in awe of his much older companions, but ultimately the decision to join them that night was one only he could make. Brendan, who was equipped with bags, a torch, a chisel, gloves and a baseball cap, informed his crew that the target was Bleak House. Darren appears to have been the getaway driver in this scenario, as only Fred and Brendan broke into Tony's farmhouse as far as I could make out. Tony, who was living primarily with his aunt at the time due to the state of disrepair Bleak House was in, had visited his mum's earlier that evening, but chose to spend the night at the farmhouse. Not long after arriving, he heard a noise coming from downstairs. It was caused by Brendan and Fred breaking in through a window. As Brendan placed a bag on the floor to get his bearings, he heard a noise coming from the staircase. Looking up instinctively, he shone his torch in the direction of the sound and spotted the figure of a man halfway down the stairs. It was Tony Martin. The next thing Brendan heard was an almighty bang, followed by a yelp of pain from Fred, who immediately said, He's got me! The homeowner had shot young Fred Barris with what would later be revealed as a 12-bore Winchester pump-action shotgun, and Brendan knew he was next in the firing line. Heading for the window through which they'd just come, Brendan could not prevent himself from being shot twice by Tony, once in his left leg and once in his right. Somehow, despite the excruciating amount of pain he must have been in, Brendan clambered his way out the window, pulling the frame out of the brickwork in the process, and got the hell out of there. Fred, who reports initially stated had been shot in the legs, was left behind and is alleged to have crawled out of the house into the front garden where he subsequently bled to death. That was despite his injuries not being considered life-threatening had he received medical treatment in good time. No ambulance was called though. Tony didn't alert the emergency services after the shootings. Brendan managed to crawl to a nearby neighbour's bungalow where he pleaded for help. When the paramedics and police arrived, he was informed that he was under arrest on suspicion of burglary, given what he'd told them. Still, he was first taken to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Kings Lynn, where he underwent emergency surgery. 
The shotgun's pellets had caused injuries to his abdomen, groin and lower back and although he survived, a series of skin grafts were required to help aid his recovery. Darren Bark was also quickly arrested for his role in the planned robbery, although the papers at the time did not name him at that point. With Tony now a wanted man, police attempted to track him down. They finally caught up with him at around 6.30am the following morning. He was staying at either a hotel or a friend's house in nearby Wisbeach. Once in custody, Tony was questioned at Lynn Police Station, the same place Darren was being held, but the officers did not yet realise there was a body in the garden back at his farmhouse. That discovery wasn't made until around 1pm that afternoon, at which point Ellen and Fred Senior were informed that their youngest child and only son had died. A full search of the farmhouse took place with the shotgun being retrieved and it soon came to light that Tony did not have a certificate for the weapon. Possession of a shotgun without a certificate is a criminal offence that can land you a maximum of five years in prison, assuming it's not been shortened. That could land you a maximum of seven years. Tony pleaded guilty to the possession charge, but denied murder and wounding with intent to cause grievous bodily harm regarding Fred and Brendan. That latter charge would later be upgraded to one of attempted murder. One thing that baffled detectives was how exactly Fred had made his way outside, given how much of a fortress Bleak House was, and how he'd broken in through a window and was then shot in the legs. Had Tony dragged the boy outside and left him to die? Forensic scientists carried out detailed searches of the property and surrounding gardens in an attempt to find out. Meanwhile, Fred's post-mortem, conducted by controversial pathologist Dr. Michael Heath, confirmed his cause of death as being due to a gunshot wound to the chest. That contradicted earlier reports suggesting Fred was shot in the legs, but what's even more jaw-dropping is that Dr. Heath claimed the shotgun pellets entered Fred's chest at the back, meaning he was shot as he attempted to flee the scene. If Tony shot Fred in the back, that surely negates the use of reasonable force, no? You can begin to see why this case still divides opinion to this day. In the immediate aftermath of the shooting, the local community rallied behind their farmer friend Tony Martin as they felt he was just an honest guy protecting his home as anyone else in his situation would. Throughout the various hearings leading up to the trial, protesters stood outside Lynn Magistrate's court and held up signs that read, Support your local farmer, whilst back at Emneth Hungate signs read, Tony Martin, good bloke. Tony's aunt Rosemary Fountaine spent time looking into the legalities of starting a fund to help raise money to pay for her nephew's legal aid, with local businesses offering to help chip in and offer their support. Numerous letters and calls were received from people based all over the UK showing their support for Tony, and eventually the Tony Martin Defence Fund was set up. The Emneth villagers raised their concerns over the lack of a police presence in the community, with one resident claiming she'd never seen a police officer in the Marshland Smith area of the village. Naturally, the police force hit back and disputed those claims, but the villagers were so concerned about their safety that they discussed enlisting the help of a private security firm to set up patrols in the area in a bid to clamp down on criminal activity. Tony was remanded until September 7th when he was granted bail from the health centre at Norwich Prison after being rejected twice previously, but it was only out for two days before being recalled for his own safety. Death threats had been received and Tony's secret safe house location had supposedly been leaked. On the same day Tony was recalled to prison, Fred's funeral took place at St Mary Magdalene Church in Newark. 
Over 500 mourners gathered to pay their respects, with Reverend Richard Harlow Trigg saying, Everybody knows that Fred shouldn't have been where he was. Equally, everybody knows that he didn't deserve to die. After learning that a five grand bounty had been placed on his head, Tony still feared for his life, which led to the police issuing an unofficial warning to the Newark traveller community, who wanted revenge more than anything. Other threats were also made, including the potential burning down of Bleak House, but that never came to fruition. Brendan Fearon answered his bail at Downham Market Police Station on September 19th and was informed that he was being charged with conspiracy to burgle. Darren Bark failed to answer his bail, but a month later he was arrested in the Devon town of Torquay by officers from Devon and Cornwall Police and he was also charged with conspiracy to burgle. Both men were bailed once more, but would go on to serve prison sentences, 36 months for Brendan and 30 months for Darren. Tony's murder trial took place at Norwich Crown Court in April 2000 and was overseen by Mr Justice Owen. The prosecution accused him of intending to kill or cause serious injury to both Fred and Brendan rather than acting in self-defence, but the accused continued to deny murder and attempted murder. Tony also denied having booby-trapped his farmhouse in anticipation of the burglars or laying in wait for them. On April 19th, Tony Martin was handed a life sentence after the jury returned with a 10-2 majority verdict of guilty regarding the murder of Fred Barris. He also received a concurrent 10-year sentence after being found guilty of wounding with intent regarding Brendan Fearon and a concurrent 12-month sentence for possessing a shotgun without a certificate. The attempted murder charge was dismissed. Judge Mr Justice Owen said, This case should serve as a direct warning to all burglars who break into people's houses. The law says we can use reasonable force because burglary is a crime and householders have a right to defend themselves. People have the right to use reasonable force and it can have tragic results. Fred Senior and Ellen Barris said in a victim impact statement, We are aware that Fred had failings and would have expected him to be dealt with and punished in the criminal justice system. He was not given that chance. Please remember that he was just 16 and the baby of our family. We are all devastated by his loss. On the other side of the coin, Tony's mum Hillary said, I am horrified at the way this country is leaning towards the criminals. What has my son done apart from defend himself? It's definitely a miscarriage of justice. Not long after the sentencing, a fair bit of dirty laundry began to air. Radio Broadland, a local radio station based in Norwich, Norfolk, received two separate phone calls from people claiming to have been jurors at the trial. The first call came from a man who said he'd been threatened and intimidated in order to deliver a guilty verdict. The second call was from a woman who said something similar, whilst also claiming she would have done the same thing had she been in Tony's position. Meanwhile, the bounty on Tony's head had allegedly increased to £60,000 whilst he was behind bars, and the then Shadow Home Secretary Anne Whittaker made the news by calling for people who resort to violence when confronted by housebreakers not to be prosecuted. Solicitor Nick Makin officially began Tony's conviction appeal at the Court of Appeal on June 19, 2000, with the main ground being that the judge substantially misdirected the jury during his summing up. Another vital ground for appeal was the alleged intimidation of some of the jurors, as well as witnesses. New evidence, including reports from forensic psychiatrists, was brought to light, as was some evidence that was allegedly excluded from the trial. Said evidence could have supposedly supported the defence's case. 
Dr. Philip Joseph said Tony had a paranoid personality disorder, but Professor Anthony Maiden said he did not find any mental disorder when he examined Tony. Regardless, Tony's murder conviction was reduced to manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility in October 2001, after Lord Wolfe, the then Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, accepted the new psychiatric evidence. A retrospective five-year prison sentence was handed out, with Tony being released from prison in August 2003, after serving almost three and a half years. Brendan Fearon attempted to sue Tony for £15,000 owing to an alleged loss of earnings, but the claim was later dropped. Brendan found himself continuously in trouble with police in the years following, with him first receiving an 18-month jail sentence in February 2003 after passing heroin to his friend, Dean Thompson, as he was being taken from Newark Police Station to a security van. I read a pretty bold article from December 2004 in which Sir John Stevens, the then Commissioner of the Met Police, stated that homeowners in Britain should be able to use whatever force is necessary to defend their homes against criminals, even if it involved killing the intruder. Tony Blair, our Prime Minister at the time, soon announced that he planned to have talks with his government about changing the law to protect householders from prosecution if they tackle and injure intruders. I did a bit of research for you, so you don't have to do it yourself. According to the UK government's website, that's at the time of writing, it says you can use reasonable force to protect yourself or others if a crime is taking place inside your home. This means you can protect yourself in the heat of the moment, as it were, including using an object as a weapon, and you can stop an intruder from running off by, say, rugby tackling them to the ground. There's no specific definition of reasonable force, and the key thing is you don't have to wait to be attacked before defending yourself in your home. Having said that, you can't just carry on attacking an intruder if you're no longer in danger, and you can't go all home alone and pre-plan a trap for them instead of calling the police. In an interview with the Daily Mail in 2019, Tony said he stands by what he did on August 20th, 1999, and does not have to excuse himself for anything. He even paid Fred's grave a visit and had the following to say about it. I was up in Newark at the Midlands show and there's a huge cemetery there. Well, Mr. Barris is there, buried up the far end. It's quite hard to find. There was a man there and I asked where I'd find him and he showed me. And there he was. Then he left me. I stood for a minute or so, just looked at the headstone. There was a picture of him on it, the same one I'd seen in the papers. I didn't feel anything. I just stood there, totally removed from what I was looking at. I did think about how everything is of our own making though, and that applies to him. Despite still owning Bleak House, Tony has never returned since the shooting. He said, Everyone has been in except me. When it all happened, it was tainted. And that was the story of the murder slash manslaughter of Fred Barris. Thanks again, Megan, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. What do you reckon? Was Martin justified in his use of force against two trespassers? Or was he rightly sent to prison? Should his murder charge have stuck? Or do you think that manslaughter was the correct decision after the appeal was granted? Please get in touch and let me know your thoughts about this incredibly divisive case. I've got another four reviews to read this week. Kate from Scony left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts USA. It reads, Greetings from Wisconsin, US of A. 
As a lifelong lover of all things British, thanks to your podcast, I can now add British murders to my list of things that fascinate me about your lovely country and history. I've been listening for a while now, and I just want to tell you how much I enjoy the pod. I probably recommended your pod to a hundred others. It wasn't really needed, but your work has continued to improve with every passing season. I really appreciate you and your work. It's so inspiring to know that on top of your full-time job, daddy duty and footballing, you have the energy to share your passion for British murders with the world. I need to stop being a freeloader and slide you a few quid of support. With my gratitude, Kate from Wisconsin, the cheese and beer capital of the good old US of A. Finally, here is a cheeky smiley face for you. Need to visit Wisconsin, I think. Cheese and beer. TP Kansu left a five-star review on Apple Podcast USA. Hello from Nevada. I came across your podcast and went through all seasons entirely too fast. Your soothing voice and respect to the victims is unmatched with others I've listened to. I've always watched true crime programs for years just to keep myself aware and figured out better to listen rather than sit in a couch or chair watching. Your podcast gets me through yard work or housework. I've unfollowed many podcasts because they became political, with many only citing mainstream media versus researching all sides of the story. I really enjoy your research and eventually did enjoy Bobby's, but since she's on sabbatical, I wait for your next episode. Keep up the great insights and respect, and please keep politics out of them. I can assure you politics is the last thing you'll hear in my episodes. And I think Bobby's back now. I think she's back making episodes again, so that's some good news. Kimberly left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Love this show. I listen while crocheting. Love the information that is given. It's unreal. 100% recommended. And finally, Veni Vedi Viti 2023 left a four-star review on Apple Podcast UK. It reads, Covers interesting cases I'm unfamiliar with. Not necessarily well-known cases. This being different to most crime podcasts. Covers cases sensitively, which is also appreciated. Could check the pronunciation of place names, especially Welsh. But presenter does apologise when unsure. All in all, a good podcast, professionally put together with good research. I wish you could see how much time and effort I put into researching place names, especially Welsh ones. I don't know what it is. For whatever reason, I just continue to get them wrong. I am always open to learn about pronunciation all that kind of stuff anything really please feel free to send me any corrections regarding errors i've made or if you find it amusing that's also a bonus thank you kate tp kansu kimberly and veni vedi vici 2023 for leaving those reviews if you want to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode you can do that on itunes facebook podchaser and britishmurders.com please keep leaving star ratings on spotify if you want to support the show on Patreon, you can do that. It's patreon.com slash British Murders. Or you can donate on a one-off basis at buymeacoffee.com slash, you got it, British Murders. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you will get a cheeky shout-out, just like Megan did for this episode. And that does us for another week. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.